So are, are these local healing monsters? Yeah. Or? These are, one of them was um, unconscious swimming or floating in a pool with a bird <laughs> eating its tail. You are listening to Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown. I'm Tony Crosdale. And today we have... Michelle Niedermeyer. Michelle, what do you do during when you're not podcasting with us? I help people solve pest problems uh, in the least toxic, most effective way. Okay. Neat. Um, and so we'll hear more about that in a little bit. Uh, but first, we'll do some of the stuff we always do in the introductions, which is... If you like this podcast, please share it. Um, you can do that online. You can just tell people about it. But somehow, let people know if you like the podcast so that they can discover it and like it too. Um, and if you want to uh, send us an email, you can email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at herbwildlifecast. You can find us on Facebook. And... Um, oh, if whatever your platform is, iTunes or Stitcher or whatever... Please rate us uh, and leave us some comments. We'd love to see what you guys say. Cool. Absolutely. All right. So the, the theme for today is, is pests and sort of what counts as a pest and why are some things pests and some things not pests. And uh, we've got three pieces. One is basically me just recording when I was trying to kill some mice um, in our kitchen. Uh, for like a minute, that'll be short. And then um, one is, I gotta turn the fan, I'm sorry. Yeah, just so people know, we're in the middle of an unbelievable heat wave in Philly, so you're gonna hear a fan in the background. Otherwise, you just wouldn't be able to do this. Um, so, uh, tell us, start, I guess, basic explanation. What is, what's <laughs> what your is office do? do? Yeah. All right, so I work for the Pennsylvania Integrated Pest Management Program, which is a program that's housed at Penn State University, but not funded by Penn State. And we are in Philadelphia, housed in the Philadelphia County Extension Office. And our program is charged with um, pest issues across the state. We deal with pests in all um, situations from agriculture to urban. So how about urban agriculture? And urban agriculture, yes. You can connect them any which way you want. But okay. I deal mostly with pests in urban areas, but or urban agricultural areas. And so um, anything that's bugging you, we might have an answer and a solution for. Bugging us. Yeah, <laughs> that's very cute. Mm. Um, so what are the pests that you get that you, you end up consulting about most often? So frequently we deal with um, cockroaches, mice, uh, ants. Got it, got it, got it. Bed, <laughs> all right, here's the big one. Bed bugs. Had it. And then there's a lot of urban wildlife that folks, I mean, deal with in the city that you know might not be obvious. Things like raccoons and possums. Um, you know, there's a lot of things out there that can, can be a pest depending on if it's in your space or not. So speaking of things that are in our space, we were just, um, I, I, Gigi and I fight a seasonal battle against small ants that, I, I mean, we're pretty sure they just invade from the, the backyard. And so I think, I, I was going to say we've sort of come to accept them on a certain level, but I'm looking at Gigi. She's nodding. Okay, she might accept them <laughs> a little less than I do. We still squish them. It encourages us to keep things a little cleaner. Sure. 
which can be hard with a four-year-old. But uh, but yeah, you were looking at what you call it a grease ant. So or it could have been a grease ant or a pavement ant. Some people refer to them as sugar ants. They're just the little tiny ants that are a nuisance. They're not really they're a pest because they're a nuisance, but they're not a pest because of you know health concerns. That's a distinction. Or a structural concern. So like so talk about that a little bit more. Like, okay, so you know for example, if it were a carpenter ant, it would be a structural concern. Um, because carpenter ants invade wood that's already decaying and then help bring things back to the earth. Okay, so carpenter ants are... It's a lovely function outside of your house. <laughs> well, you Circle know, like, of life. It is. You know, like in the big picture, they're doing a service, right? You know, they're, they're, they're helping things return to soil and they would never attack wood that is um, not already decaying. So then, you know, pets, so pests can be structural pests. Pests can also be something of a, of a health concern. So something that spreads disease one way or another, um, bacteria, viruses, you know, can bite or sting, cause allergic reactions. So, um, you know, um, the ants we have in this area are, are not of human health concern. They're, they're a nuisance or they're structural. But the, the sugar ant, the pavement ant, the grease ant, are, are clearly just nuisance ants, and I don't mean to say that a nuisance isn't a thing. It is, but it's not the end of the world. <laughs> and so, you know... Could they actually add nutritional value to your food? Well, I mean, most insects are a good source of protein. <laughs> so there is that added benefit, I suppose. Thankfully, um, we don't have those ants in quite enough quantities yeah. for them to be a good source of protein. Yeah, she's so noting that these are... These are there aren't that many of them, and they're pretty small. It would take a lot of these ants to... Yeah. To so, I mean, one thing, I mean, you noted that we just had this gigantic downpour, and we had another one last night in the middle of the night from, you know, 3.30 to 7.30 yeah, this yeah, morning. Yeah. Um, and so oftentimes these are ants that nest outside. Generally speaking, these types of ants aren't nesting inside. Um, but when they're nesting outside, they could be in an area that um, might get flooded. And so I personally have had ants moving their nest through my house to higher ground. And I knew they were doing so because they were carrying the eggs. And so... I thought they, you knew so because you could hear higher ground being played in the background. Yeah. And which version was it? Yeah. Stevie it better be Stevie yeah. Wonder. Yeah. So... If it was a flea, then you know it was Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh! <laughs> so... You know, I mean, there could be a lot of reasons that ants come into the house. Um, in the springtime, you said that you see you have a seasonal um, impact. So in the springtime, a lot of times people have ants in their kitchen, mostly because the, the ant colony, because the ants are a colony insect, right? So they, they live communally. There's a queen. She's in charge of all of them. All of them are her daughters. They're all sisters. They work together for the greater good of the queen and the colony. And so the queen sends out these scavenger ants and these worker ants to find food. Um, so oftentimes in the springtime when the nest is just kind of waking back up from, you know, kind of what's like a hibernation in the winter, um, you're going to see them in the spring because they're out looking. You know, food, water, and shelter is what everybody wants. Ants are no different. They're scouting. Yes. And so um, you see them then. You also see them in the fall when they're hurrying up trying to save enough food to make it through the winter. So okay. spring and fall are good times for ants, or when there is a giant rainstorm and they're looking for higher ground. I hope. Okay, we'll keep an eye out for the the arc of ants. Um, uh, but again, they're really not a big deal. And yeah. So so what is? Um, I guess when in terms of like sort of dinner party stories or cocktail party stories, like what are the more what are some standout 
calls you've gotten for critters and that people thought of as pests? No. Well, like I was reading recently a situation in in like North Market, not too far from here, where they tore down a house where there were supposed to be like some turkey vultures dwelling oh, in right, the right. house, mm-hmm. and people were absurdly concerned that they mm-hmm. would take their dogs. Um, but but that struck me as okay. They, now we have turkey vultures being perceived as a neighborhood pest, right? And so. Yeah, so I mean, like that story about turkey vultures, you know, turkey vultures, again, like other animals, you know, they're, they're there to clean up the mess that some others have left behind. And so when we talk about integrated pest management, the first step is to identify the pest. The second step is to figure out why they're there. And if you can eliminate the reason they're there, yeah. then the pest will go away. So those turkey vultures were there because there was something to feed on or there was shelter, right? Yeah. Food, shelter, water. My guess is there was probably food and shelter. I don't know all the specifics to that story. Yeah, but, I, I, um, I found some like articles, just very little in depth on that. Yeah. I went by, I checked out where they tore the house down, just a vacant lot of dirt right now, but. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, I guess eliminating that house um, while a really extreme um, Apparently way, it was like falling down anyways. Right, yeah. so it was slated yeah. for Demolition, taking down yeah. anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, a bird that has a six-foot wingspan, like, you should be able to figure out how to prevent it from getting inside your house <laughs> pretty easily. Yeah, and I, you know, like, turkey vultures aren't really going to be something that's going to snatch Toto away. Right? No, no, they can't. You know, they, yeah. they, they're after carrion, dead things, right? They're, they're not going yeah. for live stuff. They're birds that eat dead stuff. And I've seen the same dead possum on Spruce Street for, like, yeah. two months, so they, they're not working too hard. Black vultures are more of a pest because they're notorious for, like, ripping, like, molding and, like, um, caulking and, like, they'll, 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 like, roost on a roof and, I guess, they have some kind of nervous energy and they can't stop, <laughs> like... Yeah, they can't, they can't, like, stop themselves from, like, ripping, like, like, like picking at things. So, like, they, they can be a big problem because they'll, like, you know, rip, like, a shingle off your roof yeah. or, you know... I mean, there are lots of birds out there that will do things like that, and every municipality has different laws, and some birds are protected by state law, and some are by, protected by federal law. But I'm fairly confident that turkey vultures, you are allowed to harass at some level. I mean, you're not allowed to kill them, but you're allowed to like try and shoo them away in a in a proper fashion without harming them. Yeah, it's not like peregrines or something like that. Right. If I ever had a turkey vulture problem, I would street harass them. I would like cat call them until they felt uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> nice <Bird>. neck. Hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can harass a crow. Um, crows are really smart, but they can't. Like they, they could get back at you somehow. They, they can, but um, one of the tricks with crows is that they don't like to see each other dead. So if you were to buy, say, um, a Halloween crow decoration and hang it like it were dead, and they don't want to see that, and so hanging a crow in effigy would. She's just looking very interested in this. All scare time. crows away. <laughs> so you can harass crows in that way. They also don't like really loud noises. So I know a lot of times when crows are roosting, say, in buildings, and like farm buildings especially, they'll set off a bunch of firecrackers, which obviously I don't recommend in the city. But um, it is something that will scare them away. Why don't we then lead into the first piece we're going to listen to, um, which is a category of animal that... I personally love and would be interested to have show up in my backyard, but 
not everybody is happy when rattlesnakes move into their oh. house or yard. Um, so we're gonna hear some rattlesnakes. And so we're gonna hear an interview I did last around Christmas. Um, we're visiting some of Gigi's family in Phoenix, and turns out there's a guy in Phoenix who um, I knew Brian Hughes, who I knew sort of knew on Facebook kind of thing. Um, who who has is not just a herper in the community there, but also is um, owns a rattlesnake removal and sort of mitigation company. Brian Hughes and I own Rattlesnake Solutions. We do, um, I guess, mitigation regarding native reptiles. Okay, whatever you want to do. So this little guy, where did he come from? He's from somebody's garage okay. north of town. So in the winter, most of the calls that we get are. Um, somebody digging in, like moving the shed, and then there's five diamondbacks under there, or <laughs> because they're all denning, you know. So the yeah. most common thing that we get is right before and after Christmas. Okay. We get some people calling because they're taking out Christmas decorations, or I guess it's after Thanksgiving. Yeah. So things that are related to Christmas. So people go out and take, you know, get into the garage to get decor things they haven't touched since last year, and there's a snake behind them. So that's the case here. There were some people that were just, you know, had extra family in town for. The holiday and they're cleaning out the garage and there he was how did they get your number um from our website so that's okay. my real job is i do search engine stuff and websites and marketing oh, okay so if you google anything related to what to do if you see a rattlesnake then if you live in phoenix and i'm the guy hey podcast listeners we checked out brian's snake collection which includes a whole bunch of rattlesnakes now a lot of people um you might not be familiar with what rattlesnakes actually sound like outside of movies and fake sound effects. Um, so what you're about to hear as we talk is a chorus of rattlesnakes from the cages around us as we talk. So this is your snake room, as it were. And so what's the, do you have a theme for your collection? Or? Well, just, I want to, so it, it's past the point where I was just getting things because I wanted them a long yeah. time ago. Um, <laughs> so they have a use now, so... The other side of doing all the stuff that I do with herping and catching snakes here and talking with a lot of people that are here is, um, is that I get to meet a lot of people. So I do a lot of <laughs> education work with them. So I'm yeah. trying to get one of every one of the rattlesnakes in Arizona. So again, I had just forgotten to hit the episode. This is one that found in a snowbirder's house. Uh, out, out in the yard. Okay. But, I mean, it's just a, that's where I live. So this one... The only place I'll let it go would be right into someone else's yard. I mean, there's just nothing else there. So this snake, you know, it's pretty new development. It's possible this is one of the ones that just was in a drainage when they were building the homes. Yeah. And it's it's still there, because why not, you know? Yeah. I got her as a neonate, uh, or a hatchling, um, on a golf course in Mesa. Okay. Like 10 years ago. So she's... This is a snor this is a um yep, snoring yep. gopher snake. This is a hefty snake. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know. They had to get like a bag of these little rubber cobras like this. Yeah. And he, they must have been just running, thrown around because we got all these calls coming oh, in man. for there's cobras and we go and there's like little plastic cobra enough to where we send them a picture and okay it's the you know just to make sure. And then there was one lady. There was a it was obviously a plastic you know. To where, like, you could see the seam on the, <laughs> on the tongue and stuff like that, the, yeah. the mold. And she was starting to argue with me about that. I chased her husband <laughs> and stuff like that. I'm like, all right, you gotta, you have to talk to your husband. <laughs> I'm not going to charge you to come out and pick that up. You can see it monsters if you want. Ooh. Why, why, how do I turn that down? Yeah. 
So are, are these local heal monsters? Yeah. Or? These are, one of them was um, unconscious swimming or floating in a pool with a bird <laughs> eating its tail. <laughs> and the other one was uh, here illegally, and um, I kind of negotiated a surrender okay. with the help of one of my guys. That's awesome. And they are sleeping. They probably won't even wake up. Hey, podcast listeners. At this point, we drove out to release the little rattlesnake that had been found in someone's garage. Uh, we kept on talking as we drove, so please excuse the road noise. Thank you. So this one comes from um, a group of houses north of town okay. that kind of feeds into this wash system. Oh, okay. So where, I mean, it's you have to release them within a mile, but okay. the trick is to just look at what you think that they're using yeah. and make sure that they're either going to be in their home range or at least grouping with other snakes that are in that home range because if you don't, like if I took this snake and released it on that mountain over there, yeah. um, this snake could have a different parasite load, right, a different yeah. tolerance. Sure. Thing. I mean, you could wipe out all the snakes on that thing. Right, yeah. So it's just not a good thing to do. Yep. Um, even though, and he would probably die too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't know his way around. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like so far, like a theme is Western Diamondbacks. Like, yeah. What else are you saying? I mean, we get speckled rattlesnakes, Mojaves, occasionally. I mean, we have six different species of rattlesnake in Phoenix, but um, a lot of them, they don't really move around as much. I mean, I think the sidewinders are really common where they're at. They move around a lot, but they're kind of protected on that on the west side where they would come in. They're a lot more specialized. Um, the Diamondbacks just do good wherever they're at. Okay. So any of these parks, like just driving around town, any of those mountains. Yeah, where I've been hiking this whole time. Yeah, just yeah. Loaded, loaded with snakes. And a lot of them don't make it off the mountain, or they once tended to leave the mountain and get run over by a car a long time ago. Sure. So you find, you know, I, I find anyway, in areas that there are roads segmenting patches of desert, um, snakes like Mojaves and Sidewinders seem to disappear first, just because they they wander around more than not just tied to a particular feature where Diamondbacks, you know, just any any place that there's shade and, and food, they can, okay. they can figure it out. So what do you get called out for most often that's harmless, but people think it's something dangerous? Um, it's kind of a toss-up between gopher snakes and night snakes. Okay. Night snakes, people think that they're a baby a baby rattlesnake. Okay. How far into, I guess, downtown Phoenix do you get calls from? Um, well, we, we removed a gopher snake out of a high-rise downtown once. You know, wow. But um, it's not common. I mean, we okay. get sometimes... Yeah, just go for snakes, city parks, that kind of stuff. Okay. Look at the occasional mystery diamondback that is either a release or um, a bird. Which sounds weird, and you don't realize how often that probably happens. But birds catch snakes, and sometimes the, they drop the snakes. <laughs> sure. So um, there was one that was on a patio in, in downtown Scottsdale that we think <laughs> do the wounds on it. I think it got picked up by something and then dropped. Yeah. So there was it was like a Saturday night, and it was busy, and people were coming in and stuff. And there's this diamondback on the porch. Places like this, like this whole neighborhood, could, could get diamondbacks in it. It does get diamondbacks in it. We'll go to this. So we're looking right now at a newish neighborhood with some vacant lots next to it, and like a whole lot of like landscaped, I guess, yep. area in front. and drainages that go through it that they use. Okay. To around. Do you know much about bite statistics in in the Phoenix area? Like, do you hear much about because you got the Google word and all that? Do you, do you hear about people getting bit, I, actual envenomations? Yeah, the people get venomated. Okay. A bit. I mean, it's 
Um, you know, that's probably just in relation to the number of snakes that are here. I don't think it's... I think Tucson is getting a bit more than others just because there's a lot of retirees there. They okay. kind of start breaking that... that um, the old standby of that most people get bitten are the ones who are handling them, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It ends up not being um, true in, in some areas, if at all, because there's, there's, you know, in places like that, you have a lot of people that are gardening, a lot of people moving in from out of states that don't know that you're not supposed to just reach your hand into the bushes. Yeah. That kind of thing. So it, it gets hard to interpret because those same people that get bitten on the hand, um, so you just have to report of what they, what they were doing at the time. Yeah, as opposed to this classic drunk boyfriend scenario. Yeah, I mean, that still happens, too. That happens yeah. quite a bit. That, you know, there's some some good, some legitimate bites in there, too. Okay. Not very often. I mean, it's still... Um, I use this in my education program when people ask, like, try to assess the threat yeah. of, what, of what... It is a dangerous animal, but what is the threat? Um, and that in Phoenix, where we have... There's, there's more rattlesnakes... Like, in the city, there's more rattlesnake species in, in most states. Yeah. Um, they're very, very common. That if someone is bitten by a rattlesnake, it still very often makes the front page of the news. It's still, okay. you know, it's not something that, um, yeah, it happens, but um, I can't, I can't recall a death. Okay. That's happening here. So, you know, it's. Remember where to turn it. So this whole area is going to be developed eventually. Uh-huh. So that's why this dead is getting interesting to me because I, it, I get to watch it through that time. So Interesting, but a little sad. It is sad. Alright, so we're releasing the baby. For the, how old do you think that one is? I mean, he's like a yearling. Oh, he's probably older. He's maybe he's either a skinny two or a well-fed one. This. So right now we're we'll snake this thing there on the ground, chilling for a minute. And we're looking around the rocks to see if there are we see any adults hanging out. Go under. Go under. There you go. Okay. Often do you see them that do repeat removals of a snake? Oh, it's almost never. Yeah. I mean, if, we, if I was just looking at the that by address, like how many times have we visit the same address to catch a similar snake? Yeah. I mean, I'm doing scale counts or so, you know, to make sure it's the same one. It's just not something we we see, and a lot of that's because we, if you if you remove the snakes, if you have an area that has good habitat for them, you're providing something for them, um, then you can remove a snake, and then there'll be just be another snake. So, um, what we try to do is just is remove the snake and then remove why it's there. Yeah. So you know, rock pile next to a swimming pool with a dog food bin next to it. <laughs> okay, well, you see what your problem is, you know. So we catch the snake and then tell them how to never see, you know, basically clean that up, fix the gate, you know, stuff like that. And if they listen to it, then they can really reduce their chances of seeing it. Okay. And a lot of times it's, it's pretty obvious why why the snakes are there. There's, yeah. um, there's one woman that I know that she, one of my very first calls, she had a rosemary bush and she was laying out rabbits for the baby or uh, carrots for the baby rabbits. <laughs> Started going in there and freaking out because there was a little, a little diamondback in the bush eating baby bunnies. Um, we were sort of we were talking, listening to this, and and the the part about removing why the snake was there was kind of resonating. We're also talking about snakes around Philadelphia. Have you have you been called for brown snakes in yards and that kind of thing? We really haven't. Snakes okay. have not been an issue. I mean, if they are an issue, people haven't brought it to us. 
Good. Okay. I feel a little bit more pride in my fellow Philadelphians because Browns Knicks are all over the place. Um, not every single lot in Philadelphia, but um, backyards, vacant lots, cemeteries, community gardens. Um, and I think people see them and don't freak out, which I, I think is just nice. You know. They are so cute that I think it might transcend their, you know, people fear of snakes because they're like, oh, look at that thing. Exactly. We're, we're, in that respect, Philadelphia is lucky that it doesn't have resonant rattlesnakes or copperheads. I personally feel unlucky that my city doesn't have rattlesnakes and copperheads. Um, but, you know, if I felt that strongly about it, I could move to Phoenix or anywhere in the desert southwest, I guess. Uh, but we were, we were talking, and I, I chuckled a little. I'm looking actually at a bag of baby carrots right now. Um, and, and I would actually think about leaving them under a bush in the backyard to try to attract rabbits to feed the rattlesnakes. Anyhow, um, uh, we were talking about other things besides snakes that people think, people perceive, of, perceive as pets, or pet, as pests. And then, um, and then in reality, our, we were talking about house centipedes, which is one of our favorite ones. I think they're really cool. Um, but I've heard more people react really strongly about house centipedes than almost anything else. Doesn't look like a creepy mustache running on your wall. Right? <laughs> quite, quite true. I have a story where I was taking a bath with Magnolia um, when, we, when she was like one and a half. And a house centipede crawled out of the overflow yes. spot, you know, okay, on, yes. the, on the tub and fell in the bathtub. Yes. And I was so proud of her because her reaction was to like help the bug and rescue the bug. And so we were able to get it onto the windowsill where it wouldn't, wouldn't drown. And like, she was really concerned about it, wanted to touch it. I was like, no, no I gotta leave it alone. Right. So we sort of like rescued and, and, and let this house centipede recover. And I felt very good about <clears throat> our bug tolerance, you know. Yeah. You say millipedes is another one? So yeah, I mean, like, you know, house centipedes are one thing and they are actually a good bug in the sense that they're a predator. And so they're eating what might be the bad bugs. So if you kill the predator, you inherit its job. Millipedes are another thing, and actually millipedes um, really aren't doing anything, except for, again, they're helping turn dead things, mostly leaves and things, back into soil. So they're a, a good bug in a sense, too, because they're you know dry divorce. They're, they're helping things decompose. But people freak out, I think mostly because, you know, with house centipedes, they've got all those legs. They're fast, yeah. right? Millipedes are actually pretty slow, and they, you know, I don't know, they're not, they're not quite as um, uh, foreboding, perhaps, but people <laughs> still don't like them for various reasons. But again, if you remove the reason that they're there, which, you know, with, um, with the millipedes, it's oftentimes a pile of leaves or something else that's decomposing and turning into soil, um, then you're going to eliminate the reason the millipedes were there in the first place. And then the, you won't have a millipede problem. And with the house centipedes, you know, take a look around and see what other insects are there. Deal with that, and the house centipedes will go too. All right. So we were talking. We've talked as a theme for a while on the podcast about how how animals and plants too that share cities with us do so because there are resources here for them that um, that that they that they that they use. <clears throat> um, it isn't like I mean, you, you don't like clear the land and build a city and then everything finds a home again. It's they're only there if there's something that we that we have for them. Um, and our houses are chock full of stuff. 
I mean, we have wood that the houses are built out of, um, books that some things might like to eat. I'm looking at a table full of crackers, which I'm sure are leaving crumbs that I'll never be able to sweep up. It'll end up in the floorboards. and Old sweaters. Old sweaters. <laughs> old sweaters. Um, mm-hmm. Grain. Grain. Yep. Drippy faucets. Drippy faucets. So moisture in, the, in, in dark, moist spaces and behind your, your sink. Your blood. Your blood sometimes. <laughs> your pet's blood. Um, and so you're talking about how to isolate your house from all the things that might want to get in here and share all the wonderful things we have inside the house. Right, right. So some of the things and you know tips you can try in your own space is, um, well, trees are very important, especially in a city for air quality and shade and, um, you know, just they look nice. Um, with in the city, it is recommended that trees be trimmed back about six feet from any structure. Otherwise, you've created a super highway for anything that's living in or near or on that tree to make it easily into your home, if the, especially if branches are brushing up right against your house. Um, like also, a squirrel ending up in your attic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A squirrel is a really good example, and that is something um, which is a pest. And if you've ever had a squirrel in your attic, they cause major destruction. <laughs> they're they're very you know they gnaw they they trash things they it's like a big squirrel party up there yeah um, so trimming trees branches back about six feet from a home is really a, a good idea any any structure really um, the other recommendation you know so some things come up and you know from the high you know from tree branches and whatnot other things are down low and so taking a look around the edges of the house making sure that there's nothing that has soil or leaves or any of those sorts of things right up against the house. It's recommended that there be about an 18 inch buffer between any kind of soil or leaf material, any organic material and the foundation of the house. So, you know, whether you can put concrete down or, you know, some gravel down or anything that's gonna create a barrier um, for about 18 inches and then start the garden or, you know, the lawn or, you know, plant your flowers, whatever it is. Uh, so what happened was that this, I think it was this winter, um, we found that something had eaten the hole, it eaten a hole in the side of a, of a loaf of bread's plastic bag and eaten through a chunk of the loaf. And, you know, it, it's happened before in West Philly, various places I've lived, and so we knew it was mice. Um, and I, we talked more about, you know, food and shelter, and we did remove the food from the counter where it was easily accessible mm-hmm. to mice, but um, then we set out to kill the mice, uh, which I have mixed feelings about, but still, if there are mice living in my kitchen and um, I'm working on the other things, I still put out traps and we can talk about that after this in a second. All right. Okay, so it's December 4th. Um, we've had a late fall, and so now it's starting to get cold. Uh, and this morning, when I came downstairs to put together my lunch for work, I found that um, the piece of bread I pulled out had been eaten away in the corner, um, and that several other pieces of bread had been also in a hole chewed in the bag of bread on the countertop. Um, so I think we've got some mice, uh, some other synanthropic organisms sharing our food, which we don't allow in this house. So I'm going to set a couple traps. Um, uh, I know it's the morning. It probably won't come out until later, but... Um, we're not going to get home until after dark tonight, which, you know, dark coming early in de- early December. Um, so maybe we'll catch it before uh, we get home from work. 
Just got a couple snap traps baited with peanut butter. I will be exploiting. I will be exploiting the love of peanut butter that house mice and I share. There's one trap set. Okay, it is 8.45. We just got home on Friday night, and no, there are no mice in the traps. Looks like the mice have not taken the bait, and the traps are still sitting there with peanut butter. Okay, it's the morning um, on the 5th of December, 9 o'clock. Um, nothing has touched the traps, so... Quick voice note. Um, this morning, and I was interviewing someone on the, on the on Skype, and saw a small mouse run across the floor at around 6.50, 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, so the mice are back. Um, or never left, and I miss them, and we'll try to trap them again. All right, it's the morning of January 16th, and somehow one mouse trap caught two young mice at the same time, which I've never seen after they sort of ate all the peanut butter yesterday and didn't trip the traps. So now I'm going to feed them to the snakes. Synanthropic organism. Oh, Stan, I have a really effective mousetrap at my house named Lola. <laughs> and my cat is, I, I got her because um, someone who had her before we moved into a house and had two other cats and they would harass her and she was, you know, could, she was like over grooming. She was, had like skin problems, I guess, because she was like, she'd lose in hair. She was like super skinny and like had like scabs, I guess, from like grooming herself too much to scratch it. And so I got, I, I took her in and she went from looking like a scruffy, like a scraggly squirrel to like a lion. But she's yeah. still really, really little. But like she's a little muppet of a cat. But she's really, she's really, she was like, and like was really scared <laughs> of people forever. So like I was like, oh, just you know, you imagine that kind of a cat. She liked me, of course, because you know I'm like the one that feeds her, and so you know she'd hang out with me, but everybody else she'd hide from. So I was supposed to be super meek, but man, I just she woke me up one morning like doing the cat, the the mouse song. It's like a, a, a meow that you only. It's like a. It's like a series of meows that like almost sounds like she's singing. She's like, <laughs> and has like like drop a mouse in my bed at four in the morning, and like. If you want to throw those in the freezer for me, I'll feed them to the snakes. Yeah. I'll okay. Do that. But uh, yeah, so she's a super good mouse, but not that I have much mice. But when and, and we're not going to make this about feral cats, but really fast, I want to point out this is Tony talking very affectionately about his indoor exotic. Cat. Invasive. You're talking, talking about mice as actual. As, 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 there are the things like earwigs, which are not, which right. are more of an aesthetic problem than anything else. Right. And then mice are a different category. Yeah, I mean, mice are a serious um, health concern, and there are different kinds of mice out there. Um, but the mice that infest homes here in the city are, um, you know, the house mouse. <laughs> um, and house mouse can um, do a lot of damage. To a home, so it is a structural pest. Um, it is estimated that a good chunk of the house fires of unknown causes were probably caused by rodents chewing on wires and walls. So uh. there, there is that as well. 
Um, they damage food, they can damage property, but even more importantly, they are one of the biggest triggers of asthma. Um, Tony and I look at each other. We both have asthma. Yeah. Uh, it, there, there is a protein in their urine, which is a very well-known asthma trigger. So homes are obviously are places, anywhere a mouse has been, it's probably peed, and that urine can persist yeah. for quite some time, and that, that protein also can persist for quite some time. So it is really important to get rid of, to eliminate, to seal up cracks and crevices so that new mice can't move in, um, and to properly clean up areas where mice have been. Yeah, and to take those easily chewed through bags of, of mm -hmm. bread off the counter. Right, right. So proper, proper food storage is really, really important. And then using traps to trap the ones that remain is, you know, so that then you can have a mouse-free house, you know. Are cats recommended for mouse-free So we actually don't recommend cats for mice. Um, because not all cats are good at it. Um, sometimes they'll bring you a dead mouse. Who knows where they dragged that mouse along the way? You know, there could be bacteria and other mm. things that get spread, bodily fluids, blood, whatnot. Um, the other thing is some mice are just, or some cats are not good at getting mice. Um, we've heard awful stories of people starving their cats, hoping that they'll oh. turn to the mice instead. Oh. You know, like, I'm not gonna feed this cat because it's gonna go for the mice then, when actually, it's it's just not into the mice, <laughs> you know. It's not its thing, yeah. and so that you know, there's you know cases of animal cruelty, and, and maybe so that's left over from the cat apologist propaganda that say a, <laughs> a, a fed cat doesn't hunt, right? Which is not true. <laughs> Lola is very well fed. <laughs> she can eat whatever she wants, whenever she wants, and she still gets mice. Right. So some cats are just not interested in it so we really yeah. don't recommend cats i mean there are lots of bio controls you know like one thing eating another out in the world but cats and mice you know it's tom and jerry it's what a black rat snake <laughs> <laughs> i i would love it if we had black rat one of my sort of environmental i don't have to call it like sort of great co problems with the cosmos is why can't black rat snakes live in philadelphia where i live and I, I think we'll, we'll end on maybe a slightly romantic note about mice. I was researching mice, and I had seen an article, and it sort of piqued my interest on this part, that, and it's something I think I've, on the podcast we talked about with other kinds of critters, like, like house sparrows, um, that there are, are animals that have, that were wild once somewhere, um, but have been with us so long that it's hard to draw a distinction, it's hard to, 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 Put your finger on where they originated and that that they are not just a wild animal that sometimes hangs out with us they are they're, they're permanently in community with us wherever we go um and so house sparrow is one of those and then mice and apparently mice originated in in uh indian subcontinent um and for i think i was reading something like like eight thousand years or so but maybe maybe more used to it, but basically with agriculture moving out of Southwest Asia, moved with agriculture, so thousands and thousands of years ago, through, the, through Europe in a couple different directions, through um, the various parts of uh, East Asia, um, and then with, with European explorers to the New World, et cetera. Um, and so mice have sort of, are, are sort of very much like a part of our society and they can do like they can do sort of genetic analysis of mice and tell which migration of mice this particular mouse is from. And so you can 
Like if you find a, 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 let's say a desert island in the Pacific somewhere, you can like figure out who visited it when by the genetics of the mice on the island because you can say, all right, these are the Polynesian or whatever the mice or no, these are definitely British mice that like rode in on some English ship in the 1800s and they visited for water or something. Um, yes, they shouldn't be in your house and you should do something about it. Um, but we're trying to figure out a way to cultivate like a certain amount of like respect and like for like the history and sort of the, the ecology of something, even as I'm trying to <laughs> Um, one of my favorite poems is To a Mouse by a Scottish poet named Robert Burns. So Gigi had been planning on, get, planning on getting one of her acting buddies who's Scottish and lives in Glasgow to read the poem for me uh -huh. um, with the proper accent and everything. Sure. Um, and so we sort of moved that up from my birthday present to like being for the podcast. So instead of our usual wildlife thing, we're going to have Lawrence Crawford read To a Mouse by Robert Burns. And you'll hear that after the end of the episode. Before we finish up, I want to make sure that if there's any more anecdotes or any pieces of information or anything that you want to talk about you didn't get to, I want to yeah. make sure we cover that. You know. Well, I mean, I could go on and on and on for days, weeks, months on pests and pesticides. We'll have you back. Health and, <laughs> and those sorts of things. I mean, but I... Also, I, hey, why don't you... So, so, I'll, so I'll say this softly because my neighbor might be out there right now, but um, I have a neighbor who will sit there with a can of like yeah. wasp spray or something. Right. And like, psst, 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 right. you know, and it, 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 it's sort of their property, okay, but it drives me a little nuts. Yeah. Um, and so talk a little bit about why you might want to avoid using, you know. Right. So, I mean, for starters, kind of just because something is for sale doesn't necessarily mean it's safe. There are lots of things that are available um, where, you know, they're, they're legal, they're um, approved by the U.S. EPA. Um, however, if questions haven't been asked and many questions, more questions haven't been asked than have been asked in terms of uh, environmental or human health impact, and we don't know the answers whether or not something is safe. I mean, you, you have to consider what it is. Is there another way to get rid of that pest? So, for example, the neighbor with the wasp, right? Um, <laughs> you know, why is that wasp there? Well, wasps are actually pollinators. So, do you really need to be killing a wasp? Um, probably not. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean. um, you know, like if, if someone has an allergic reaction and there's a wasp nest and, you know, there's a lot of factors that can contribute to why someone might want to eliminate them. But big picture, you don't need to kill one wasp at a time with a can of Raid. If you're really that upset about it, you know, like a rolled up newspaper, a fly swatter, uh, you know, is a far more effective and less toxic way uh, to deal with it. Um, Maybe a rainbow bee eater. Yeah, there's that. Rainbow too. bead, or we should import some. Yeah. 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 Seems like for talking to wildlife rehabbers in the area, yeah. like that's one of the biggest causes of like raptors coming in is, is mm -hmm. rodenticide. Um, it's a big issue with, with urban mammal predators sure. that they, they have those top of the food chain effects of eating a bunch of rodents with yeah, rodenticide. Little, little bits of this and little bits of that and then suddenly the And they end up with these horrible cases of mange that, and yeah. like weird other stuff that um, kills them. Yep. And so it's it, it seems it's a frustrating point of incompatibility. It's yeah. like a bobcat yeah okay we'll take up the question of whether you want mountain lions living in your backyard. Um, I do. I do too. Right, but predators are great. I could understand the people might disagree with that kind of thing. Right. Um, but but uh, but let's say foxes or or bobcats or that kind of thing on that scale, like they're not. And I'll even say coyotes. I, I want coyotes. Um, I'd go with wolves. Or, there you go. 
Um, but so all, at all these scales, these are things that eat rodents at some point right. and to some degree, and so it can be killed by rodenticides. So it's, it, it, if, um, even if you think to yourself, oh, I'm never going to eat a mouse myself, you know, like... You say that, and then next thing you know, you're like stationed in the Arctic. Long story short, <laughs> it's not just about you and that one pest you have. There's a big world out there, and we're all connected. All right, so let's wrap up. Um, we'll s- repeat what we said before. Uh, please share the podcast if you like it um, by any means possible. Um, please rate us on your favorite podcasting platform, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, whatever. Um, email us anything you want at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter at urbwildlifecast. Find us on Facebook. Um, and uh, we really want your wildlife bling. So if you um, are any city, even if it's what is to you a boring thing, like let's say house sparrows, like doing something neat on your porch, um, or uh, morning doves, or um, if it's a different country than or different area, then things that you would find very mundane would be fascinating to us. Long-tailed um, macaques are urban wildlife you know throughout like you know the tropical asia i mean that's and i've seen it with my own eyes but i love to hear people's you know, good stories anecdotes about them tony might get to australia to see some rainbow lorikeets yes yeah i, I mean I'm definitely, lorikeets. I'm definitely going to australia tickets booked so you're going to see some urban cockatoos urban lorikeets yeah you're going to come back i know you with a whole lot of footage or footage a whole lot of recording um, that we're going to turn into like two or three like Tony's Expedition to Australia episodes. Yeah. Um, it's going to be fun. Uh, but anyhow, point being, wherever you are, if you, whether it's interesting interesting bees, interesting butterflies, interesting plants growing in the sidewalk cracks outside your house, record like 30 seconds, five, up, let's say 30 seconds to five minutes on your smartphone. So send us an email and uh, tweet at us, whatever, and we will find a way to get that file from you and put it on the podcast. Dermis by Rabbi Bums on turning up in our nest with a plough, November 1785. Wee, sleek it, timorous beastie. Oh, what a panic's in thy breastie. Thou needna start a war so hasty with bickerin' brattle. I would be laith to run and chase thee wi murderin' battle. I'm truly sorry man's domination has broken nature's social union and justifies that ill opinion which makes thee startle at me, thy poor earth-born companion and fellow mortal. I doubt na whiles bout thee me thieve, what then, poor beastie, thou maun live, and dame icker in a thrive, so's all man requit. I'll get a blessing wi the lave, and ne'er miss it. Thy wee bit hussy too in ruin, it's silly wa the winds are strewn, and Nathan knew too big a nain. O foggage green, and bleak December's winning soon, baith snail and keen. Thou saw the fields laying bare and waste, and weary winter coming fast, and 
cosy here beneath the blast, who thought to dwell till crash the cruel coulter passed out thawed thy cell. That we but heap all leaves and stubble has cost thee mony a weary nibble. No those turn a doot for all thy trouble, but who's are hard to thaw the winter's sleety dribble and cray a cruach cold. But, Moosey, thou art no thy lane, and proven foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes o' mice and men gang aft agly, and lay as though nocht but grieve and pain for promised joy. Still, thou art blessed compared wi' me. The present only toucheth thee, but och, a backward cast mine e, on prospects dear, and forward though I cannot see, I guess an, and fear. 